Hey everyone, I'm Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I just want to say it's one of the joys of the Christian life that we get to follow the voice of Jesus, that we get to follow Christ himself as he leads us, and it's great as a church that we're wanting to open ourselves to him and his leading. Um, along that vein, we're continuing our sermon series this morning in Luke, uh, it's a book in the Bible, and we believe that the Bible Every page of the Bible whispers his name as one children's Bible puts it. So I invite you to get a Bible out and turn with me to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. And if you're new to the Bible, you don't quite know how to navigate it, you can find our passage on page 842 of the blue Bibles that look like this, 842. So what we're going to do is read this passage, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig in to see what Jesus is saying to us this morning. So Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down the fire of heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and yet that you would Illumine our hearts and minds to receive these words that you inspired Luke to pen and that you would bring us into an encounter with the crucified and risen Christ in this moment. Would our meeting with you inform and transform our lives? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Up until this point in Luke's gospel, there has been one dominating theme that Luke has been wanting to convey to us, his hearers, and that theme is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus has been going around his home area of Galilee, and we've seen he's been teaching, he's been preaching, and he's been healing. And what we've been seeing is that Jesus comes onto the scene as God's king, and he's looking to take back the world for God, the kingdom of God. And as he brings the kingdom of God, people are being liberated. 
healed and restored in every respect. Evil is being confronted and judged and expelled. And our most fundamental need as humans is being met. Jesus is forgiving our sins and restoring our relationship with the creator. But now there's actually a major shift in Luke's gospel. Jesus is on the move and what is gonna happen now is Luke is gonna focus not on who is Jesus, but what does it mean to follow this Jesus? The word follow, you'll notice, was in our passage today. Look at verse 51. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, and there we need to read his death, resurrection, and ascension. As that time approached, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus is on the move. The threads of history are drawing Jesus towards the place where it's all going to go down, and he is going to triumph over evil, and he's going to take up his throne as king. And the next nine chapters of Luke are framed within this journey, and we get to journey with the disciples on that road towards Jerusalem. Now, there's a word I want to explain to you. It's, it's the word disciple. We've heard it earlier on in the service, and I just want to explain flat out what that means. A disciple is a student. A disciple is an apprentice. And we're really big on believing that a disciple and discipleship isn't just for like a few select Christians, part of the church, right? The really serious ones. But that disciple, being a disciple is that what it means to call yourself a Christian. That this is for all of us. And discipleship is not a boat with a sail, but discipleship is the journey of learning from Jesus how to do this thing called life in the way that it was meant to be done. As a church leadership, we agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer that Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. It's the living Christ who draws us to follow him and be his students. And this morning, as we dive into this passage, we're gonna see that real discipleship involves living a new mercy and that real discipleship embraces a new loyalty. Living a new mercy. The first half of our passage begins in verse 51 and it brought us into an interesting scene, didn't it? So Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, which is down here. And he's up here in Galilee. And you'll notice this place called Samaria. It's kind of, it's kind of the burger in the sandwich between Galilee and Jerusalem. And so often to get to Jerusalem, you had to go through Samaria. And that's what Jesus and his disciples look to do. And let me just say that relations between Samaria, the Samaritans, and Jews were not peaceful. They had had wars between one another for centuries. There was 700 years of deep religious and ethnic tensions. One historian notes that when people, when Jews from Galilee would journey to Jerusalem, uh, it was often the case that they would get um, uh, murdered or beaten or um, uh, stopped and have their stuff stolen by Samaritans, right? This was not a peaceful 
relationship. And so what a lot of people would do in that day is they would go from Galilee and they would go around through Perea down to Jerusalem, right? Why risk the trouble? Well, Jesus does. He goes there. And as we read, they get rejected. And that brings us to what we're probably all wondering about. In response to them being rejected, James and John say to Jesus, hey, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? I don't know about you, but that's not the first thing I would think of to say to Jesus. And as ridiculous as their reaction might seem to us, I think we can kind of humor them and and get a sense, what's going on in their minds? Why, Why would they say this to Jesus? First of all, we need to know that they're not making up the idea of calling fire down from heaven on people. They're actually recalling a really important character in the Old Testament and a character that we've met in the Gospel of Luke, the prophet Elijah. Remember this transfiguration scene where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus kind of in white clothes and he was on a mountain. Who was with him? Do you remember? Moses and Elijah. They've just seen Elijah. They've got Elijah on the brain. And you know what Elijah's response to people who rejected God was? It's calling fire down. It was calling fire down on them, right? Many of us are familiar with the story, uh, the competition with the prophets of Baal where uh, Elijah sets up a sacrifice, douses it with water, and God sends fire to roast the sacrifice. Well, there's another story even lesser known in 2 Kings chapter 1 that tells about a king, the king of Israel at the time, Ahaziah. And Ahaziah was the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And let me just tell you, Ahab and Jezebel were bad news. They were the worst. They were this awful, evil power couple. They were the Bonnie and Clyde of the day. They had uh, rejected God and they went out to kill God's prophets and they made Israel worship other gods. And so their son Ahaziah followed in their footsteps. And here's what happens in 2 Kings chapter 1 Ahaziah gets sick. And Elijah sends him a message, not in person, but he sends him a message saying, Yep, you're going to die. You're not coming back from this one. And so Ahaziah, you know, probably wanting a bit more information, like to know more about his impending doom, uh, sends a company of men to Elijah. Elijah's out in the wilderness. He's like Steve Irwin or Bear Grylls. He's he's really roughing it, uh, eating bugs and all that. And so he sends a company of 50 men to, to get Elijah and bring him back. And here's what happens. When that company of 50 men gets to the mountain where Elijah's staying, they say to him, man of God, The king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And it does. This is what happens. This is an engraving by Gustave Doré, the French uh, artist. Uh, Here are the 50 men and their horses. Here's fire coming down. And this little shadow there in the background, it's Elijah. He's calling fire dawn on them. This doesn't just happen once because Ahaziah sends another company of 50 men 
Same thing happens. They say, man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah answers the captain, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And it does. So Ahaziah sends another 50 men. And can you just imagine their approach to this place? They come just like, oh man of God, just spare my life. Spare the life of my men. Just come with us, please. And God tells Elijah, yeah, you can go with them. They're not going to hurt you. And he does. Why am I telling you this? Because what's in the disciples' minds about um, what people who have rejected God deserve? It was fire and judgment. That's what was in their mind. That's what people deserve who reject God. They had just seen Jesus and Elijah hanging out and they had learned, wow, Jesus is even greater than Elijah. So if this is what happened with Elijah, wow, this is God in the flesh with us. Jesus, let us defend you. Let us call the fire down. That's what you get when you reject the holy God of the universe. That's what's on their mind. What does Jesus do? Look at verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them. It's so blunt. It's so clear. Just stop it. Why? Why does Jesus do that? It's because Jesus is doing a new and unexpected thing. He's not giving people what they deserve. He's giving people what they don't deserve. He's forgiving sins. He's freeing people from slavery to evil and bondage to themselves and bondage um, to evil spirits and to sickness. He's taking the world back for God in God's way. And guess what? He's He's inviting his disciples into that work of taking back the world in God's way. And, and here's what we need to see. He wants them to begin to live a new mercy. Now, don't get me wrong. We're going to see later. Jesus does bring the fire. John the Baptist had said when Jesus comes, he's going to bring fire, and Jesus will bring fire. But he brings fire to the earth in a way no one expects. Real discipleship, real following of Jesus, being his students and apprentices means living a new mercy. And to do that, we've got to get rid of our prejudice and of our hatred. See, that's what was fueling these disciples with their fire and brimstone call. There was deep prejudice in them, hatred, racism, Can you detect some self-righteousness as well? (laughs) And Jesus wants it out of them. His response is to rebuke them. Now, there's something very unique about Christianity, true Christianity. So generally in religion and and with a cause uh, that you commit to, the deeper you go in that cause or in that religion, what tends to happen to you is you become harder on yourself and you become harder on others, right? So just think of, you know, 
say you have a teenage daughter, she becomes a vegetarian, she gets totally sold out in the cause, and you're sitting around the kitchen table eating hamburgers, and what does she do? She's like, are you guys serious? You're eating hamburgers? Come on. Right? The deeper you go in a cause or religion, there's this radicalization or a militancy that kicks in, and you get less tolerant toward other people. You get staunch and more demanding and critical of people who aren't quite cutting it like you are. And that's kind of what the disciples are doing. And I think that filters into the church as well. I mean, how often does it seem that Christians want to call the fire of heaven down on people? Or at least they seem to speak that way. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. Here's how real discipleship works. Here's how Christianity is different, is that the deeper you go with Jesus and the more committed you are to him, you know what happens? You don't become harder on others. You become more gracious to them. You become more gracious to them because you live with an awareness of Jesus' profound mercy and grace towards you. And your identity has been reshaped by his mercy and you start to live within the economy and the environment of his grace. And in one sense, you actually do become harder on yourself. Let me explain that. The more uh, you journey with Jesus, the more aware you become of how you don't cut it. Not of how other people don't cut it, how you don't cut it. He, he turns the mirror on us. He points our sin out. And the deeper you go with Jesus, the more honest you can be about your sin. And the reason you can be hard on yourself about your sin and not be thrown by it or lose your identity is because you've become so convinced of God's grace that me being honest about my sin isn't gonna throw me. Because I know God is a God of grace, he's a God of forgiveness, and I know what he's done in Christ. By the way, that's why confession and repentance are gifts to us. They're gifts because they operate on the assumption of God's grace and his goodness. So if you're in the room and you always hear, you know, the word confession and the thought of bringing your sin to Jesus and repenting as a heavy word, I would challenge you to wonder, do you believe in the grace and mercy of God in Christ. Because if you do, then those words are good words to your ears. The deeper you go with Jesus, the more gracious you become towards others, even your enemies. Do we remember the Sermon on the Plain? A couple pages back, Jesus tells his disciples about how it works in the kingdom. And he tells them, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And he wraps it all up with these words. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And then he goes on to talk about don't judge people, don't condemn them. And we saw that that doesn't mean that there's no right and wrong. That doesn't mean that we don't get to judge between what's right and wrong, but it does mean we don't condemn people. Jesus calls his followers to live a new mercy. So I want you to think about your life. Where are you hard on people? 
Do you get worked up about wanting others to get what they deserve? Or what you think they deserve? Or what are the groups that Christians seem to want to call the fire of heaven down on? What would Jesus say when Christians rise up with that urge? What would he say? He rebukes his disciples. There's prejudice everywhere in the world we live in. And prejudice in the church too. And here's one thing I want to focus on. There is a huge amount of generational prejudice flowing both ways in our culture. In this cultural moment, there is this tension and new technologies are just driving the generation gap further and further apart. Think the okay boomer put down. Right? There are stereotypes and assumptions and fears and prejudice on both sides of the equation among the younger generations and the older ones. This cultural moment is steeped in generational prejudice. Now I want you to look around the room. Go ahead. You can do it. Look around the room. We're a church of all kinds of culture, all kinds of ages. And if we're going to be a church that lives a new mercy towards one another and towards the world, we've got to let Jesus deal with our prejudice. We need to let Jesus deal with our prejudice in this area. I'm willing to wager that when some of us look around the room, we feel more anxiety about talking to someone who's either much older or much younger than us than we do of talking to someone of another culture. Think about that if that's true for you. Don't raise your hand. Just consider that. Who are you terrified of talking to in this room? We need to get to know one another and understand one another. And understanding comes through being willing to lay down my assumptions and misgivings and fears about the other. Air quotes there. And be open to listen and love people who are different from me, right? Jesus wants a church where it's not hostility, it's not prejudice flowing through the generations. He wants blessing to flow. He wants understanding and love to flow between the generations. Why? Because it is a proclamation of the kingdom. It is a proclamation of his reconciling work done on the cross that people in our culture and in our world who are used to this and are engaged in this would look at us and say, how is it that you care for one another? How is it that you know one another, that you eat dinner together? And we can say, oh, it's Jesus. Jesus is God's king. And he's taking back the world in God's ways and we've been reconciled to God through his death and resurrection and to one another. And that means we can reject that. We've got this new identity in Christ. Oh, people of God, would this be how we operate as a body of believers? Real discipleship means following Jesus and living a new mercy. And real discipleship also embraces a new loyalty, and it's a loyalty to Jesus first. 
The second half of our passage, verses 57 to 61, brings us into this set of three quick conversations, one with a hasty person and two with hesitant people. Verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Ah, an eager and willing recruit, right? That's what everyone wants who's starting a movement. But Jesus sees something. He sees that there's something in this man that's actually going to prevent him from following despite his good intentions, despite his hastiness to follow. So Jesus says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What does that mean? What is Jesus getting at? He's getting at the man's attachment to comfort. He's saying, son, I'm not that kind of king who stays in comfy inns and Airbnbs and waltzes into the city to the acclaim of everyone. I'm the kind of king who's going to suffer and die. We're not going to be staying in those inns. We're going to be roughing it. So count the cost. Are you willing to sacrifice your comfort? Comfort's a tricky thing, isn't it? Right on the one hand, we're motivated to make our lives as comfortable as possible. We even pray for and and seek God's comfort in our midst of uncomfortable circumstances, right? That he would transform all my uncomfortable circumstances into comfortable ones. Comfort isn't bad in itself. And the comforts we get to enjoy in life are in a sense gifts of God. But being comfortable is a threat to real discipleship. Because comfort easily becomes an idol. Comfort easily becomes a condition to our following of Jesus. It becomes the organizing principle of my life. I mean, think about the last week. What what was motivating you to make some of your decisions? About things to buy, people to see, or people to not see, right? Right? C.S. Lewis said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port could do that. He says, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Because real discipleship means counting the cost of following a suffering king on the way of the cross. Next, we have the hesitant Recruits, look at verse 59. He said to another man, Jesus takes the initiative and he says, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now there's a big cultural piece to understand about this statement, the phrase bury my father doesn't necessarily mean that the man's father had already died. It was a way of saying, I will follow you after my father has died. Because in Jesus' culture, this is very different from modern-day North American culture, family was really important, and a lot of you come from uh, cultures where family is really important. And so as a son, you took your duty to take care of your parents as they aged. So what's going on here is this man is putting a condition. He delays. 
He wants to put off following until such and such a time. Notice that word first in verse 59. Lord, first, Lord, first, let me go. As in there's this thing, there's this relationship, there's this duty that comes first. And and I got to do that first. And look at what Jesus says to them. And, And as we hear this, we're probably thinking, man, Jesus is so harsh. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. But you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their dead. What on earth does that mean? Let's look at the first dead. Um, Can the first dead person who's burying a dead person be physically dead? No, a dead person can't bury a dead person. So he's talking about someone who's spiritually dead. The second person is really physically dead. So he's saying something to the effect of, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. As in, I've called you to something new. There are lots of other people who will take care of that. But my call has come to you. And here's, what, here's the point. Jesus is saying that to follow him takes priority over even the highest and most important human loyalties that we can have. Right? It takes priority over the highest and most important loyalties we can have. And and I can't really soften the force of this. This is Jesus saying this straight up. And you might be thinking here this morning, yeah, I believe in God, you know, and I understand that Jesus died for my sins. Um, But you know deep down that you've been putting off actually following him. You've been delaying And there might be many reasons for that. Maybe what the demands that Jesus will make of you scare you. Uh, Maybe you feel like there's a more ideal time to follow Jesus. You know, once I'm out of college, once I've bought a house, once I've had kids, once my kids are grown up, once my kids are out of the house. See how it works when you put something off? You keep putting it off. And here's the thing. If you really understood who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you wouldn't put it off. And the fact that you are actually points to spiritual deadness in your life. And so if that's you this morning and you're delaying, you need to wake up. Rather, you need to let God wake you up. You need to ask God to wake you up so that you can see Jesus and the significance of his life, death, and resurrection and how following him as your first loyalty is the best possible thing for your life. Ask him to show you. The third man comes, and this is another volunteer, but he comes straight up with a condition, right? He says, I will follow you, Lord, but first... Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And again, we might say, that's such a reasonable ask. Can't he go home and say, bye mom, bye dad, or bye wife, have fun with the kids for two weeks, maybe six months, I don't know. And Jesus, you know, this lucky man, the teacher gives another parable. He's just relentless. He says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, who's ever plowed a field before? No, we're we're urban. (laughs) We don't plow fields. 
But I've heard from people who do that when you're plowing a field to make your furrows, you need to set your eyes in the distance, on the, probably uh, the, the horizon, on a point, and you need to fix it there, or else your furrows are going to go like this. Right? They're going to go all over the place. You also need to be looking forward, because if there's a big stone, and you're a farmer and you're plowing, and you break your tool on the stone, what happens? You're in big trouble. This is about focus. This is about having your focus in the right place. And this looking back that Jesus talks about in the parable is about distraction. We struggle with distraction, don't we? It's about your focus not being where it needs to be. And this is a word for us who hesitate because we're distracted, because there's other things competing for our affection. There's other things that are competing for the first place in our lives. You see, when Jesus gets a hold of our life, he calls us into a new life, an entirely new way of living. He makes us into new creations. And so there's like a new and an old. And we all get that once Jesus does that to us and in us, It's not like, oh, I've all of a sudden stopped going back to the old, but the old keeps like calling us back. Hey, Andrew, come on. That was so fun. Hey, Andrew, this will make you feel significant. Hey, Andrew. Talking to myself. Just picture your name. Right? Like, what is it for you? What's your distraction? Uh, Maybe, you know, it was a toxic relationship that when it wasn't miserable, you kind of felt a bit loved. Maybe it was a party lifestyle that made you feel alive and vibrant. Um, Maybe it was giving yourself sexually to people because it it meant feeling a brief moment of connection in a world that is deeply lonely. What is your distraction? Jesus says that the person who looks back isn't fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now let me explain that. The word fit here doesn't mean worthy. Worthy. Okay? Doesn't mean worthy. It's fit as in useful. So this isn't, I mean, when it comes to service in the kingdom of God, who of us is worthy? On our own, none. Christ makes us worthy. But our usefulness for the kingdom, that's what he's talking about. If you're distracted and you're always looking back, you're not going to be useful or effective for the kingdom because your loyalty is divided. It's not for Jesus first and your heart isn't in it. This whole relationship, the arena of following Jesus and being a disciple, what we see is Jesus graciously meeting people where they're at, right? He gives the apt word to the hasty dude. He gives his apt word to the hesitant people. And he does that with us too. But the thing that they have in common is that Jesus is the one who sets the terms, right? He sets the terms of the, the relationship. And then he leaves it to us. Are you going to follow? And that is incredibly honoring. He's not hiding the hard stuff in the fine print for you to find out later to your great chagrin. He's giving full disclosure. Right up front, this is the kind of king I am. This is what it's going to mean to follow me. So then it comes to us, will I obey? 
will I obey? Will I follow Jesus and will I proclaim the kingdom? As we head into the afternoon, I want you to consider two questions. If you want to snap a picture or jot these down, feel free uh, for you to reflect on. First one is, what are the conditions that I've placed on my discipleship that Jesus wants me to lay down? Do I have any firsts? I'll follow Jesus, but first. What are your conditions? Secondly, will I follow Jesus and proclaim the kingdom of God with my life? Will I do it? And don't just give like, yes, I will, and then leave it. Like, reflect on this. Pray on this. Obedience is hard. But it's nearly impossible to obey someone you don't know. Relationship is always the context of our obedience. Relationship is always the context of our obedience. Now, as a parent of three kids, five and under, I'm like on the other side of asking for obedience, right? I mean, God asked for my obedience, but as a parent, I've got to ask my kids to obey like a billion times a day. And this is particularly hard when we go to the store and we are there to get essentials, right? Stuff we need to live. But what inevitably happens is is my kids see the toys. They see the stuffies, right? And, And you get this litany of, can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? No? Okay, what about this? And it's really hard sometimes as a parent uh, to not lose it. Um, but what we sometimes do is we say, okay, Zoe, you know, take your stuffy, walk around the store with it, and you'll, you'll give it to the checkout person when we buy our groceries. And we've realized that we need to restrain the urge, that parental urge of like, you know, say we've checked out, of like ripping the toy out from her hand and giving it to the checkout person. Right? I mean, you've all seen parents do it. You've probably done it. But we found it helpful to restrain that urge. Why? Because I want to see my kids learn to lay down their own will and obey me of their own accord, right? I I want them to do it. So this one time I remember we had checked out of the store. We were like ready to go and we had to wait 15 minutes just there like waiting for Zoe to, you know, go up and hand it over. And that time of asking your kids, like saying, oh, you've got to obey me in this, it's painful, right? There's pleading, there's confusion in their minds. And in moments when I want my kids to obey me, here's what I want them to know the most. I'm your dad. Nobody in the world loves you more than I do. Except your mom, maybe. We're like equal, but maybe she's a bit more. Right? That's the knowledge that I want uh, to be infused into that moment where they have to choose to obey. Do you know who I am? Do you know that I love you? Do you know I jump in front of a bus to save you? And even though you know, their, their, their little developing minds are agonizing about this, like you can trust that I have your best intentions 
in mind. What does my daughter not see that I see? It's that greed and covetousness are a poison that will enter your heart and shape you in really bad ways. And I want you to learn to let things go. My kids' obedience happens in the context of my love for them in a process of real life training where they get to know my track record. Which isn't always great, but by God's grace, I think it's good enough. They're on this process of, dare I say, discipleship. Just like we're on. Now when God asks us to obey, what does he want us to know about him? What does he want us to know about his track record? Um, what is the relationship that makes our obedience possible. I want to bring us back to the fire. Think about the fire that the disciples wanted to call down on the Samaritans. They weren't making that up. The fire is real. Judgment is real. There's a real moral and spiritual cost to our sin and rebellion. And you and I on our own stand in the place of those who deserve the fire. <laughs> We're with Ahaziah's Men, that's what we deserve apart from a miraculous intervention. Now let me show you another image. And let me say that this is how judgment really went down. Jesus came to bring a fire to earth and a fire indeed did come, but it came in a way nobody expected. This is what God's judgment looks like. That the judge became the judge the judge became the judged. And he took on himself the sentence and punishment for all of our wrongdoing and failure. The fire came down, but it came down on the one not who deserved it, which is you and I, but the one who didn't, which is God himself. Can you see it? Can you see the glory of God taking back God's world in God's own way, satisfying his justice, and his mercy. Brothers and sisters, the judgment has taken place and the final judgment is gonna be sorted out by how we respond to this judgment, the judgment of the cross. And I think as Jesus' disciples, Jesus wants to remind us of why he came. John three sixteen, the verse that so many of us know so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I actually think that John 3.17 is just as important. It says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And as Jesus stands before us, maybe rebuking us for our prejudice and calling us to follow, this is God's track record. When the cross starts to define your life and the person who hung on the cross for you comes into your life, you can't help but live in new mercy. And when you see God's son giving his life for you, you know you can give him your loyalty first. He'll make good. And you come to discover that losing your life for Jesus and putting him first and everything actually makes all the sense in the world. 
because it is in losing our lives for Jesus that we find true and abundant life and it's in following him in the way of the cross that we are raised with him into new and resurrected and eternal life. And may it be so with us. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the worship team as they come and lead us in a couple songs before we close our service.